As many of you might know, we made a very exciting announcement last week. Candace Hopkins has assumed the role of senior curator, and Tyrone Bastian the role of curator for both 2019-2021 iterations. Ilana Shamoon has also come on as our director of programming, and I mean, I truly have the best team ever. As we move forward, we are working closely with arts organizations, government agencies, and, corporate, and the corporate sector to lay the foundation for what will be Canada's newest international biennial of contemporary art. So we've also thought long and hard about where the biennial will take place in our city and have selected Toronto's waterfront as its main artery. Rapidly changing, symbolically rich, and historically charged, it will be activated by over 40 Canadian and international artists from various disciplines. Artworks including significant site-specific commissions will be curated to reveal the complex history of the region stretching from Etobicoke Creek and Mississauga to the Portlands. Programming with art spaces, art institutions, artist-run centers, community organizations, and educational institutions will be an integral part of the biennial's activities. The biennial will be a transformative experience for residents and for visitors and is expected to attract about 400,000 people to the metro area. And as, Toronto, and as Torontonians, it'll be amazing to have the front row seat. As I mentioned, this has been a work in progress for almost four years, and our two speakers this evening have contributed generously and rigorously to helping us shape the vision for Toronto's biennial. They recognize the many opportunities our biennials bring to communities and to a city's cultural infrastructure. We are so pleased to introduce them to you as they share their perspectives, deep experience, and shared passion for the arts. Sally Talent is the director of the Liverpool Biennial, the UK Biennial of International Contemporary Art, known as the Perennial Biennial. I'm totally stealing that tagline. <laughs> no, um, Sally and her team have created an engaging year-round organization that is a model for how we envision the Toronto Biennial of Art. From 2001 to 11, Sally was head of programs at the Serpentine Gallery in London. She has curated numerous exhibitions, public art commissions, performances, sound events, and film programs, including initiating the Park Night series in the Serpentine Gallery pavilions and co-curating the Serpentine Gallery Marathon series. A regular contributor to conferences nationally and internationally, Sally is vice president of the International Biennial Association and a member of the London Regional Council for the Arts. Council of England. It's a mouthful. Kitty Scott is the Carolyn Morton Rapp Curator of Modern and Contemporary Art here at the AGO. She previously worked at the Bath Center as Director of the Visual Arts Program, was Chief Curator at Serpentine Galleries, and Curator of Contemporary Art at the National Gallery of Canada. She was Curatorial Advisor to the Biennale de Montréal in 2016, and the Curator for the Canadian Pavilion at the Venice Biennale in 2017. This year, Kitty is co-curator of the Liverpool Biennial, working closely with Sally. <clears throat> in her roughly 25 years as a curator, Kitty has worked with some of the most influential artists of our time. She has also written extensively about contemporary for catalogs, books, and journals, and frequently lectures at art schools and curatorial programs around North America. In tonight's talk, Sally will say a few words about the Liverpool Biennial, revealing its departure from a traditional biennial model to one that is embedding curators and artists in the city to create programming that is connected to Liverpool and its inhabitants. She will be joined by Kitty to discuss their exciting plans for the 10th edition of the Liverpool Biennial entitled Beautiful World, Where Are You? Now I know many of you have questions about Toronto's new and exciting biennial, 
So please feel free to speak to me directly after the talk or email us at our website at torontobiennial.org. Don't forget to follow, like, and join the conversation on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. And on behalf of the Toronto Biennial of Art, we thank the AGO for hosting this evening's event. Ladies and gentlemen, with tremendous pleasure, Sally Talent and Kitty Scott. Friends on. Oh, yeah. Hello. Um, Patricia, thank you so much for that uh, very kind introduction. It's a real pleasure to be here. Uh, it's my first ever time in Toronto, to my shame. So uh, thank you for the weather. Thank you for the beautiful city. I've had a great time going around today. And actually, what I've seen of the plans of the Toronto Biennial are really, really ambitious and really exciting. And I I think it's going to be a really amazing undertaking. And it's always a collaborative endeavour. These things only happen because of the effort and goodwill of an awful lot of people. They're citywide and they need to come from everyone. So you all need to help make it happen. Um, so we, we've planned a presentation here. I'm going to talk a little bit about um, the kind of format of Liverpool Biennial and then Kitty and I are going to speak together about the edition, the, the 10th edition that we've co-curated um, and um, actually it's, Kitty and I worked together as you may have clocked from uh, hearing the introduction of the Serpentine, she's shaking her head, um, very, for a number of years and uh, I think this conversation probably between us started uh, at that time but then um, when Kitty went to Banff uh, together with the team from Liverpool Biennial, we went to Banff to try and work out what on earth the relevance of a biennial might be in any city context and what we could do that was relevant to the context of Liverpool. And I, that was in my first year as a director there. And I, um, having developed that 10-year uh, plan, announced it at the end of the first biennial. Um, and we formed that 10-year plan there. So actually, Kitty's been a part of the conversation right from the beginning, so it made an awful lot of sense for us to work together on this edition in uh, 2018. So I'm not going to talk, is that all right if I just talk about my things first? Yeah, just say a few words about the, this behind you. The... Do you want to say it? Uh, I will, okay. <laughs> um, so we're, we're trying to find a kind of a picture of the biennial, how we're going to show it to people in a way and what it, what it would look like as an image. And uh, we had a long conversation and we had a little, maybe a small battle even, where I was with each other. Yeah, yeah. It's a friendly battle. Um, and I, I just wasn't liking what the designer was doing. The designer was a wonderful person, really great. Um, but I just felt there was no texture. And I think a lot of what we see in the world today is kind of flat and kind of anonymous and um, feels like it came out of a computer, you know? I think I wanted something sort of analog. And so I kept talking about this, and suddenly, out of nowhere, appeared a, a man that I knew about but didn't realize was from Liverpool. Uh, uh, I'd met him actually before, Paul Elements, a quite famous uh, graphic designer who's known for his found fonts. So he runs around the world picking up bits and pieces and then he puts words together with those bits and pieces. So you might recognize a pie plate behind you and you might recognize uh, uh, some paper clips, um, things like that. Anyway, he's done a whole series of these for us. So uh, generally, it's never the same one you're looking at, but uh, I, I've fallen in love with them. I think they're fantastic. So just wanted to show you that they come from an artist and from a, a kind of a very creative person. So, yeah. so <coughs> I'm going to now talk.
talk. So what I'm going to show you really is the ethos that we've developed in Liverpool and the kind of, the, the difficult thing about biennials is that they happen every two years, which actually means you're in a constant state of panic and production because it's, um, it's a horrifyingly short period of time. You spend ages thinking about what you want to do, then you invite the artists, and then, they, and then in the end you're doing everything in a year. And of course you inevitably want to commission new work and do exciting things. So I was, and having worked in an institution for a long time, for 10 years at Serpentine, I, I needed to find a way to kind of give us a longer-term vision within which we could embrace this inevitable, chaotic working environment and make that a strength and make that something that uh, artists could really enjoy working together with us on rather than it becoming a kind of challenge that we had to survive and endure. Um, so, so I thought by, uh, by proposing a 10-year plan, we could all buy into a vision and we could, we, could, we could work beyond and through each edition of the biennial. Sometimes artist projects don't work out in the timescale. So, so in fact, there's a couple of people where we haven't managed to do quite what we wanted to do this time, but what I've said is, okay, let's do it next time. Let's keep the conversation going. And I think it's quite important for us to have that continuity. Um, one thing that we do know is that uh, it's the small things that people do in the world that change the world and that this world does need some adjustments to include all of us. And so we carry with us an ethos that, that, that enables us to think, you know, just a small group of us can do something really meaningful. Uh, artists know this, and actually anyone working in our sector knows this, but I think it's good to be reminded of it and by a great woman like Margaret Mead. So the question that guides us, or the question that guides me in anything that I do really is um, what's necessary here? And the here needs to be really understood. So the here in Toronto is an entirely different here than the here I have in Liverpool, or the here that someone might have in Dakar in Senegal, or Lumbambashi in the Congo, or Venice, or Sao Paulo. And I think understanding context then gives you a mechanism by which it's possible to think, okay, this is what we need to do. And listening to those local uh, concerns and being able to understand how to connect with the communities that define the context in which you're operating are, is a really important place to start. So I don't know how many people have been to Liverpool. Actually, can I see who's been to Liverpool? Well, loads of people. Okay, not that many, actually. Okay, great. <laughs> so um, so uh, I'll just give you some facts that will help you understand a little better the situation and context in which I'm working. So Liverpool is a port city, and at one point it was one of the most affluent and productive port cities in the UK. Uh, we're no longer an industrial uh, nation. And what you can see here is a, is a decline, which actually you will note at the bottom is beginning to grow and regrow, but a decline from, about, from a city that was really built with huge confidence for around a million people down to a city that now operates for about half a million people. And what that means is that not enough people uh, live in the city and pay tax in the city to cover basic infrastructural costs. So things like social services, adult social care, education, things that like, you would expect. Because if there's not enough people paying their taxes, then you can't provide the infrastructure. But the city has the largest cultural infrastructure outside of London. So we have eight museums. We have many galleries. Uh, and also we have the UK Biennial of Contemporary Art. And the reason we have that investment in culture is because the city understands that it's actually through the creative and... Uh, entrepreneurial thinking that artists bring to a civic context that we will rethink what's necessary 
in the face of post-industrial decline and late capitalism. So, you know, how do we think our way out of this mess that we currently live in? It's not by doing what we used to do. We, you know, and we're facing a culture of automization of labor and a lot of the service industries in Liverpool mean that we, we have very high unemployment, lack of aspiration. I'm not, I'm not painting the most jolly picture here. It's a fantastic place, but I think it's important to understand the economic situation that we're working in. And so actually the, 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 um, the importance of thinking, okay, let's, let's create uh, exciting cultural context is actually really key and why we have a biennial in such a city. Uh, if, you've, if you don't know much about Liverpool, probably this is what you know. Uh, so we were, uh, it's a port city, as I said earlier. The wealth of the city came from trading in cotton, in tobacco, in slavery, and uh, in sugar. And um, a lot of people left Liverpool to start lives in the new world. And also, it was also an entry point into the country where um, textiles would go along the canals into the rest of the country to manufacturing. We have two Premier League football teams. I was put both, just in case. And of course, it's a city that's very well known for its music. Um, Actually, I should just say, so the reason I show this slide is when I first arrived, I was really struck by a paralyzing nostalgia. So often people would talk to me about who's left, who's not there anymore, um, and what happened in the past. And uh, actually very little about what was happening in the present. And then... We have this. So this is uh, an image of Wirral Waters. And um, Wirral Waters is where the old docks uh, currently are. And this is a development that's proposed by Peel Holdings, who are a company that own all of the docks between Liverpool and Manchester and are doing a major redevelopment. You will see from this image that this looks a little bit like sort of a 10, ten years ago Shanghai kind of development. And actually what's interesting is that... Um, under planning constraint, I don't know how it is here, but in the UK, you are normally granted a, a, a three to six year planning window, planning consent. But actually, in this case, uh, this development's been granted a 30 year window. So what that means is that um, most of the people working on the project will not see change or anything happen in their working lifetimes. So paralyzing nostalgia, science fiction, future not yet to be. How do you operate in that to both draw the best from the past and create something in the present that looks to the future and engages the citizens in something that's positive and active? This is, this is where we come in. Uh, so I describe what we do as, as being a situated curatorial practice. We work in the city. We work with the people and talent and organizations in the city, but we're networked in our thinking and we and we uh, operate both locally, so a local operation on the ground with, with, together with our communities and our artists, and at the same time, we connect to a global context. And it's our job uh, to bring an international conversation to Liverpool and to bring artists who, to work with our galleries and museums who sometimes, you know, we can bring a different kind of emphasis and focus on the city than, than they have at other times within the year. Um, so... Instead of trying to have a theme or something, what I decided to do was kind of create an idea. So the idea we have is that Liverpool's a thinking city. It's full of knowledge. We have four universities, but also we have citizens who know things. Uh, if we want to work with children, we have experts that are children now who you can collaborate with, who can tell you all about that, or people that have worked on the docks all their lives, or amazing engineers who know stuff, or 
the gardeners who look after the parks. And so we, we want to treat the city as a brain, a pool of knowledge, and as a teacher that can inform how we work together with artists. And when we work with artists, we ask them what they need to know, and we can connect them to all kinds of knowledge. And, and cities are kind of big and complicated, so we broke it down into three types of spaces. So streets and housing, this is what some of our streets look like. So this speaks to the narrative earlier around uh, disinvestment. This is political abandonment rather than people not wanting to live there. So how can we take a street like this and work together with our partners to make it a place where artists can come and live? London uh, is too expensive for anyone to live in. So uh, you can actually have a house in Liverpool with a garden and... Uh, if you have a family, you can actually give them a room each. I mean, I know you kind of live like that here already, but we in London, people don't live like that. And uh, artists, as any of you here who are artists know, uh, the average salary for an artist in the UK is £9,000 a year. So actually, that's a ridiculously low uh, amount of money to live on. So, But in Liverpool, it's possible to have a house and to live quite well. So how do we create the conditions for that to grow? Can I give houses to artists for free, maybe? Is it possible? Because we need artists to move there. Is it possible for us to employ them in the civic job of rethinking the city together with architects and our citizens? Question mark. We don't really know the answer to this, but I'm working with all of my partners to think through whether we can do something. And we have the docks. This is an image of the docks. And we have these buildings that are, I mean, you have these kind of large buildings as well that like, had a function at one point, but no one can think what to do with them now. So this is an old sugar silo built to store sugar. And this is an old tobacco warehouse uh, that's actually designed to keep things cold and damp, so not very good for housing. And it's, it's huge. And so how we can uh, think about uh, using these sites as cultural destinations. We have a lot of parks, and uh, this is Everton Park, and together with the city, we think about, so during the year-round programme, we commission large-scale permanent works, and so we worked together with Koo Jung Ah, who's a South Korean artist, to, who was for two years coming to work with communities in Everton to think they wanted a skate facility or a wheels facility, so she made a usable public artwork, which is a permanent sculpture, which glows in the dark. And, um, uh, and for us, this was really great because the city wanted one, so they put the money in to pay for it, but we made something that's a unique artwork, which I think is a really great outcome of, of, of a collaboration together with the city. So, nearly there. So since, uh, since we opened 20 years ago, we have worked, presented work by over 500 artists, we've commissioned 250 new artworks, um, in the last biennial, we had 1.2 million visitors, and we've, we can demonstrate that we've brought uh, an economic impact of 126 million to the city uh, through tourism and through... And that's actually a conservative estimate because we, um, we didn't capture the data properly at the beginning, which I would recommend you do. Uh, and so we changed our methodology, so I've only got properly evident evidenceable data since then. Uh, and we, 13% uh, of our uh, visitors are international. Um, we take the opportunity to do year-round commissions, and we're about to do a boat, so about boat in New York, actually, on the Hudson. But um, So during the First World War, um, artists were employed to create dazzle camouflage. This was in, a, in an effort to stop ships sinking. At the time, they didn't have radar. They had, like, point and shoot. Uh, and these were often, like... Um, 
ships that were full of food or merchant ships. And so um, what the camouflage does is confuse people about which direction it's going and where the edges of the ship are. So we were interested in the role artists have played in the First World War, and it's the centenary since the First World War now. So we've commissioned a number of ships. So this, is, this one was in London. This was Tobias Rayberger on the Thames. This is Sir Peter Blake, who has actually dazzled the Mersey Ferry, um, which is on the water and uh, is working on the water now. Uh, this one is Carlos Cruz Diaz, uh, who's an amazing Venezuelan artist who, at the age of 96, did our, did our uh, dazzle ship, which is supposed to be painted out, but everyone loves it, so I can't paint it out. And this one was in Edinburgh, and we're about to do one on the Hudson with Tauber Auerbach. Uh, we also did buses. So cultural infra um, infrastructure is interesting to me. These go out into the wider city region and go into places where actually we don't work and where people find out about art. And so this one was done by one of our associate artists, Fran Disley. This one was done together with young people and a design a designer called Hato Design. Uh, it's called Space Bus. And this one is Brick Bus, was done by Anna Jota, who's a painter in her 80s, who's uh, living in Lisbon. So what's great about these is they're on the road for three years, and for us, they give us this presence year-round as well. Um, I'm nearly there. So the associate artists are really, I, I love this programme. We support 10 artists that live in the north of England, in Leeds, Manchester, Liverpool, and Chester. And each of them has been paired with a curator through Independent Curators International who are based in New York. And their curators are mentors that work with them for three years. And each artist gets £12,000 to travel and develop their networks. And for me, this is very important because the messaging is you can be an internationally successful and visible artist, but not have to move to London to do that. Uh, so I thought it'd be interesting for you to see my 10-year plan. So 2018 to 2028, uh, Plan on a page is always a good idea, I think. So we'll do five biennials, five permanent public artworks. We will tour and do co-commissions nationally and internationally. We'll, we have technology and innovation partners to think about what that means for cultural production, talent development, as I've described. We work very closely with the universities and have joint appointments with them. And education is at the heart of everything we do. I see it as a, a very large-scale education and learning project. And we do secondments and staff exchange, where we send our team elsewhere uh, in the world, and we have people coming to work with us in Liverpool, so we enrich our knowledge and we broaden what we think we know. And we often work across disciplines. So that's like a really fast-potted version of the history of Liverpool Biennial. And so one of the things when I arrived in 2012 that I wanted to do was to really set up an incredible team on the ground, which I have, and I call us ground control, and we kind of work with all of our colleagues across the city, and we know our communities, and they're all really brilliant curators. But every time we do a biennial, I want to kind of invent a new way of working. So uh, in 2014, we had two curators join the conversation. In 2016, I invited 11, and we had a curatorial faculty, which worked a bit like a magazine. And then for 2018, I invited Kitty to co-curate together with me and the team. And um, as I said, we'd started that conversation earlier. But um, I think it's been, it's been three years, hasn't it? Because we announced it early. Because I thought it'd be good to give a three-year run at it. Um, and so I thought, uh, as we move into this now, maybe, Kitty, you could say a bit about how we came to this 
title. Sure, yeah. No, thank you. Thank you for the invitation. It's been uh, really interesting working uh, in Liverpool, uh, working in another city, uh, being connected to another place. Anyway, I just want to talk to you a little bit about the title. So, um, Beautiful World, Where Are You? Uh, it derived from a 1788 poem by the German poet Friedrich Schiller. And um, in time, uh, somebody called Schubert, uh, a musician, turned it into a song. The last stanza became a song, uh, which the first line is, beautiful world, where are you? That was in 1819. And the years between the composition of the poem and the song uh, were marked by great upheaval, profound change in Europe. Uh, you can think of the French Revolution and uh, the fall of the Napoleonic Empire. So kind of deep uncertainty. And today, uh, if you like, I, I felt that poem really uh, kind of grips, uh, you know, grips this kind of world that we live in. We live in a world of deep uncertainty. It seemed familiar. Um, this, this, world, this kind of uh, sentence can also be read as an invitation or a lament. And um, it asks us to reconsider uh, our past and perhaps how we might advance a new sense of beauty, one perhaps that's more equitable. So that was the thinking that went on behind, behind this. Um, when I got to Liverpool, I, I looked around, and um, there are fantastic uh, spaces to show contemporary art, and this is really an exhibition that focuses on contemporary art. But I was intrigued by all the things that were already there. So there are lots of collections throughout the city. There are objects and museums. And I, I often go and see contemporary art, and I, I, I kind of long for historic objects. I love, I love the past. And you know, the reason I got into working with contemporary art is, is art history. And uh, I have a deep love of the past. So um, wandering around uh, the Walker, Arts, uh, Walker Art Gallery in, in Liverpool, I, I saw this great collection, Rembrandt's, uh, George Stubbs. George Stubbs, of course, is an artist uh, from Liverpool. That's where he comes from. You probably know him for his horse paintings and such. But this painting of a monkey, people often understand it as a portrait of an artist. So the idea that this monkey is looking at a canvas, you could sort of see that, and perhaps going to look back at a model uh, quite close by. So the idea of this, these kind of objects already existing in the city became really interesting to me. And I thought that perhaps we could kind of stream these into the biennial. So we have a, a second stream that's called World Within Worlds, where we actually look at objects that exist in the city. So the walker also has a beautiful uh, martini painting, uh, Christ Discovered. Um, in the temple. Um, also, this is a, a masterpiece uh, in the museum, um, uh, Helen of Troy, uh, a, a painting that you see reproduced over and over again in the city. And uh, so I thought I'd pick this up as well and bring it into the biennial. So we have these objects from, from our past uh, included. Uh, this was a, a kind of fantastic discovery. So there's the, the World uh, Museum in Liverpool, which I came into the lobby and saw this really kind of incredible three-story uh, Haida pole. And um, reading about it, it, it came from a house. So often these poles come from houses. This is a frontal, frontal pole. And it came from a house called uh, Something Terrible Happened House. So you, you think about that. You think about this kind of cycle of destruction. How did this pole leave that house and come to the UK, uh, come to this particular museum? Uh, it was probably made in the 1860s, 1870s, to give you a sense of age. It's an incredibly grand object. And then just doing a little bit more research about it. And uh, of course, uh, during the Blitz, uh, Liverpool uh, was bombed badly. And so the other image that you're seeing there is the pole uh, surviving this particular blitz and it's it's still intact and it's kind of amazing to think that it's this kind of object of survivance if you like 
we're working in many sites throughout the city to show contemporary art. So along with these other kinds of museums and other kinds of objects, uh, we're partners with the Tate Liverpool, so that's been happening repeatedly over the time of the biennial. And we have uh, two floors at the Tate. So the first floor will be uh, Hegu Yang, a uh, Korean artist who will be doing uh, this kind of series called The Intermediates, which are made from this uh, artificial, artificial straw, so kind of plastic straw, if you like. Uh, she'll be doing a, a large-scale uh, installation with sound, wallpaper, a complete environment on the first floor of the Tate. So um, upstairs, we are showing a group of artists. So uh, Kevin Beasley, who's an African-American artist who's done a lot of work that I think both performance and sculptural installation uh, relates, I think, to the kind of African-American body uh, in the US now. You think about uh, violence, you think about street culture, you think about the kinds of things that have happened to black men uh, in our time uh, when you look at work by Kevin. It's front and center. This is a work from the Tate's collection, but they haven't shown it before. Also, uh, we're bringing together a number of indigenous Aboriginal artists. Dale Harding is a young uh, Aboriginal artist from Australia who works with this ancient tradition that his people have been working with for a very long time. So these hand stencils, you can see the boomerang, the hands. Uh, this is something that his family have uh, been making on rock surfaces throughout Australia. He's very inter interested to bring it out of Australia uh, to uh, the fourth floor of, of Tate Liverpool and to kind of bring it into our time for it to travel uh, from that place to this place. So we're looking forward to working with him. We'll also have a new work by Brian Youngen, so probably a lot of you are familiar uh, with Brian. He's been uh, going back into the sneaker. He's famous for making these objects that resemble Northwest Coast masks uh, that, have, that are kind of made from transformed uh, Nike sneakers. He's going back into the sneaker and treating it almost like a, a kind of animal that he's going to carve up. And uh, these are uh, warrior, warrior war bonnets uh, worn by Shan warriors. Uh, they, they're modeled on this kind of object, and uh, he's actually taking the sneaker and carving the soles to find feathers within the soles of the sneakers and creating these very beautiful, stunning sculptural objects. So uh, we'll be showing three new works in that series of war bonnets. Uh, Dwayne Linkletter, who uh, we, have, we have a work in the collection. So this particular piece called Kiss uh, from 2014, we have five similar kinds of work, but they're really very much about uh, familial relations, uh, but you can connect them, of course, to uh, times of contract, uh, contact and trade and uh, this early kind of economic relationship that the UK, of course, uh, had, had with a place uh, uh, probably yet to be called Canada. So, um, But it, I think it'll be very interesting to see a lot of this uh, indigenous work on the fourth floor. As well, we're bringing... Uh, Annie Pudigook's work over. So I've worked with Nancy Campbell, uh, who's in the audience, I think, who's done a lot of work on Annie. And uh, we've selected about 20 works uh, that will be, again, on the fourth floor of the Tate in, in their own room. While I was doing research in Liverpool, I learned that there's a map in the World Museum. And the map was made with Hudson Bay, you know, people from the Hudson Bay, and uh, an Inuit woman. Uh, it's a drawing that they have in the collection that sort of uh, was, was to kind of help them understand, everyone to understand the land that they were moving through. I thought it was kind of fantastic that there was already a drawing by an Inuit woman in the city there. Um, yeah. So. 
Uh, Joyce Wieland is also somebody who'll show uh, there. Again, somebody probably familiar to uh, many people uh, in Toronto and uh, certainly across Canada, but somebody I think has been under-recognized uh, more generally. We'll be showing uh, three of the video works, film works, and uh, of course, Rat Life and Diet, uh, uh, where you see a band of kind of uh, imprisoned gerbils, oppressed gerbils who escape to Canada, Canada and take part in a cherry festival. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so. We have um, Donald Trump has announced that he's doing a state visit on the day of our opening, which is great. <laughs> and so this film will be dedicated to that. <laughs> uh, the Blue Coat is the, one of the oldest buildings in Liverpool. It's an old school. It's 300 years old. And um, it's, a, it's, it's interesting because it's right in the middle of a shopping centre. So right around it, they've developed this kind of, you know, very recognisable shopping mall type situation. But it's this very historic, beautiful old building in the middle of it. But what's interesting about the Blue Coat is it's a community arts centre. It has a proper arts centre model. So there's performing arts, there are studios there, there's an amazing print workshop there, and then they have galleries. And so it's great to be able to work with them and to be able to give them the resources actually to be a bit more ambitious than they would generally be able to uh, year round. So we're presenting a number of works there. This is a work uh, by Ryan Gander. That's Ryan in the middle. Uh, and he is working together with five artists under the age of eight, who are Jamie Clark, Phoebe Edwards, Tiana Mehta, Maisie Williams, and Joshua Yates. And they've been working together with Ryan over the last year to create new work, which will be shown at the Blue Coat, but also they're making a permanent public artwork um, outside of Liverpool's um, Catholic Cathedral. And um, we're also working with the teachers from this school to create a curriculum uh, based on the project, which will be rolled out um, digitally, so will be available to everybody to give them an insight into Ryan's methodology. Uh, Suki Sujong Kang, who's a South Korean artist. Um, she works with uh, sculpture, but also with performance, and they act as almost like props or prompts for activity. And um, she's, it's interesting, we, we first met Suki because as part of the biennial, we also host something called Bloomberg New Contemporaries, which is um, for graduating students from art schools in the UK. And we have the John Moores Painting Prize. And Suki was actually a student at St. Martin's. So she studied in London and uh, showed uh, in that exhibition in 2012. So for me, that's very nice that she participated in a student show with the biennial in 2012 but is now one of our major commissions in 2018. Uh, Silke Otto Knapp is making a very, very large-scale painting, which will be a kind of frieze around a whole gallery on, uh, on the upstairs galleries in, in, in the Blue Coat, and which draws from uh, kind of dancers and is informed by the history of uh, theatre in the city. Melanie Smith who has made a new film. Um, so Melanie is actually uh, lives or has lived and worked in Mexico for a long time, but is originally from Dorset in the UK and uh, is about to move back to the UK. So it's really nice to be able to show this work at this moment where she's coming back, let's say. Uh, but this is um, a film that looks at a town that's built specifically for salt extraction and yeah, mining so, in so Chile. Yeah. In a town called Maria Elena uh, in 
in the Atacama Desert that um, mines saltpeter and is a film that really shows a kind of degraded landscape, but also just what everyday life looks in this particular place. And of course, the mines are moving out. It's a really, it's the driest, one of the harshest environments in the world. They talk about it as being like the surface of Mars, but a really stunning film. So this is the saltpeter extraction. This is part of the process, this explosion. And FACT, which is a, a gallery which is specifically um, uh, established to work with technology and media and, and visual arts. So this is part of the ecology we have in the city. And we're working with a number of artists there. So Morishin Alayari, who is uh, an Iranian artist based in the US, and together with the Whitney and FACT and the Biennial, we're commissioning an online uh, work for, from Morishin. Uh, Mohamed Barissa, who is uh, an Algerian artist based, living and working in Paris. And this, we're showing um, Horse Day, which is a film he made uh, uh, in the US, working with urban cowboys. Uh, this, uh, and he, um, this community kind of used horses instead of cars. And uh, he worked together with them to create almost like a jousting type event, like a village fete where they um, dressed the horses and were involved in a kind of uh, ceremonial kind of uh, day-long activity. He spent quite a long time working with that community. Yeah, in Philly, yeah. And so um, uh, it's been really amazing to work with him. We invited him to Liverpool on the basis of this work. So we're showing this film, but we've also uh, worked with him to commission uh, a garden. He's also found his way into a school that actually wasn't the intention, but that's where he ended up. And he's working in a primary school in Toxteth in Liverpool 8, which is a part of the city that's really interesting and has a lot of kind of histories of um, the, the riots happened there. We had race riots there in the 1980s. And the, he's built a garden in the school, which is based on a garden in Algeria that was built by uh, France Fanon, which was... Um, yeah. A healing garden built in a mental health institution in a, in a psychiatric hospital, and um, the actual plan of the garden that uh, that we've constructed in Liverpool and the plants come from that garden. But also, he got very, very interested in plant migration and the history and movement of seeds and plants across the world, particularly in a port city like Liverpool. So we're actually in the middle of here. We're going to grow loofahs, which I didn't even know were a plant. You know, like the ones you use in the bath. Uh, I thought they were a sea sponge. I had no idea. But apparently these are a very common plant that you grow in Algeria. So we're going to have Liverpool Louvre for harvesting in September if any of you want to come and get a very unique product uh, from the garden, grown in a school. Yeah. Um, and then we're absolutely beyond excited that uh, Agnes Varda accepted our invitation to be in the biennial. And of course, she's an amazing filmmaker, very important. She's 90 this year, and we're working together with the BFI to do a retrospective of her work that will be rolled out across cinemas in the UK. And she's also curated a film programme for us, as well as making new work. But here she is, so she's going to speak for herself. I'm very pleased to have been invited to the Liverpool Art Biennale. And that strange title interests me very much because you can say, beautiful world, where are you? As a nostalgic way of looking at the past. You can also question, beautiful world, art, beautiful world, what can we do? What can we do to make it beautiful? And that's where I think it's our duty as artists to be conscious, conscious but also build something that is more beautiful than lovely. Well, uh, for what I 
will show, have two pieces, well, two or three pieces. One is a trio of big screens. Uh, it's due to my love for the old Flemish triptychs. And it shows on a big scale three different rhythms. It's like if I wanted to understand and make, understand and share with people how we can perceive at the same time three different rhythms proposing the time to be read differently. And then I have a piece shot of photos and film shot Rue La Mouffetard, a little street in Paris. A very sad world that I saw in the 50s. And I could say, beautiful world, why it didn't touch, it didn't touch these people? Why they had to face an ugly world? So it's playing with the words of your title, and I'm delighted to be invited. So cool. Um, we have a specialist photography gallery in Liverpool called Open Eye Gallery, and uh, there we're presenting work by Madiha Ijaz, who is an artist based in Karachi in Pakistan. And her work is film-based and image-based, and it um, speaks to uh, the role of the librarian. So there's a number of libraries uh, in Karachi that she's studied. She's interested in librarians as holders of knowledge and gatekeepers to knowledge. And uh, one of the issues that... Um, I think is very current, uh, is that um, the erasure of Urdu in Pakistan because of the use of English. So English as a colonizing language, but also in film and in media, so the television that people uh, receive and music, and also actually in schools, a lot of lessons are taught in English. So when, during partition uh, in India, when uh, people left to go to Pakistan or Bangladesh, Often one of the things they would take with them would be their books. If they could only carry one thing, maybe they took their books uh, or maybe a musical instrument. And um, to carry your culture and your tradition and then to try and fight to recover it is, is at the heart of what um, Madiha is making her work about. George Asodi is a Nigerian photographer and his, this is a series of works that we're going to show which focuses on Nigerian monarchs. So these look at the kind of tribal monarchy that was prevalent in Nigeria. And it, these, these, these uh, monarchs, and we have some queens as well, um, no longer have the kind of legal jurisdiction that they had because it's a centralized government that, that was imposed in Nigeria. But actually they do still actually have massive influence in, in the communities in which they operate. And I think for George, this is a work that questions uh, the idea of governance and looks at different models of governing. Uh, RIBA North, which is an architecture uh, gallery, we're working together with them to present Mailing Loco, who is um, an amazing architect uh, from Ghana who has worked out how to use the waste products of manufacturing. So this is sugarcane, and she's turning it in, she's upcycling it and turning it into building materials. So what was once just a massive, massive waste product, tons and tons of the stuff, and coconut husks as well, actually, that just was difficult to dispose of has now become a valuable commodity that can be upcycled and contribute to a local economy. And so she's interested in the triangle trade, which is the history of slavery uh, in the city, and looking at those economies and commenting on those. So we're really thrilled to be working with her. Um, oh, this is you. Yeah, so the Playhouse. This is the first time the Liverpool Biennial has uh, worked with the Playhouse. Uh, it was uh, uh, 
one of the oldest repertory theaters in the UK, and we'll have several several different artists working in there. So, uh, one of uh, uh, one of my favorite artists in the biennial uh, as a person, he's. Uh, He's somebody who trained at the Juilliard School of Music, so he trained in composition. And you know, when you're working in a city like Liverpool, of course, the Beatles and music and song, I think, is 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 a very important thing. And thinking about the title, uh, which really you know comes from this kind of Schubert moment, so Ari really kind of. Uh, links to that in a, in a very serious way. He's uh, collaborated with many artists, so people like Tino Segal, Philippe Pereno, and uh, 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 Dominique Gonzalez Forster. So somebody who's very embedded in, in the art world, practices as an artist. And for this particular work, he'll be collaborating with a number of musicians. So uh, Betty Bright, who's from Deaf School, Budgie, who was the drummer from uh, Susie and the Banshees, uh, Louisa Roach, who uh, is from She Shot the Gun, and Ken Owen, who's a thrash metal uh, museum, uh, drummer, isn't he? Thrash He's metal a drummer, yeah. drummer, yeah, with Carcass. So those particular musicians are going to be in the work that. Uh, and they're all are from in, Liverpool. This is yeah, what they're all wanted. from Liverpool, yeah. and they'll be presented on the stage of the Playhouse. Uh, we're also looking at uh, Ritu Sitar, who has been studying uh, the harmonium, which is an instrument uh, used in Bangladesh and with new interpretations of Islam. Uh, the use of this instrument has become uh, sort of more confined and constricted. And she's very interested in kind of playing notes, rebellious notes, notes. Uh, this instrument has like seven notes, so playing these notes for very long, extended uh, periods of time. I think it's a great example, this particular project, of the kinds of collaborations that Sally has uh, built up at with the Liverpool Biennials. So she does collaborations with many institutions throughout the world that are connected to biennials. So the DACA Art Summit is our collaborator for this particular project. We're also working with uh, Chu Cheng uh, from Taiwan, who uh, in this particular work has built these uh, huge, uh, huge uh, dishes that are repeatedly cleaned over and over again. And uh, we're, no, we're working in this building, uh, which I'll say a few words and then... Yeah, no, 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 up. sorry, okay. I was just taking my notes. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, no, sorry, sorry. Um, I like to think of this as like, you know, when you're, when you're coming from Canada, this is kind of the Harry Potter building in the show. <laughs> so this is one of the first buildings, uh, purpose-built buildings for the University of Liverpool. It really is that kind of oldie English kind of uh, building, First, one of the first red brick buildings, I think, in the city as well. Uh, they show all kinds of very strange things. Are known <laughs> for their fantastic collection um, on the history of dentures, which is, um, I knew nothing about till I entered the, the museum. The Waterloo teeth. Yeah, the Waterloo teeth. So um, often dentures were made uh, from soldiers who died in battle. So people would run through, you know, fields and pick up the teeth and then make new sets of dentures. Really strange information. Anyway, so we're showing the, those. Yeah, but this museum, <laughs> this museum was a kind of was an inspiration for me. So yeah. Are you not talking about no, somebody you're doing else? This you want me to do this? One? Yeah. Okay. Do you want me to do it? Oh, no, I didn't know you were doing it. Okay. okay. Oh, that's weird. Okay. <laughs> so we have this division of labor here, but I have a different one. So Abbas Akavan, who many of you will know, who's uh, based here, has made this absolutely beautiful uh, sculptural work, which actually draws from the relics, or it's a fragment of a larger sculpture that was destroyed by ISIS, and it's actually made of washed earth which is compressed and create it grows this kind of strange white crust during the duration of the show so it, it looks like stone actually by the end of the show not at the beginning 
Uh, you should talk about Francis. Yeah, so Francis Elise, uh, artist probably again quite familiar with here. We had a big show at the AGO, but he has been painting uh, for the duration of his practice uh, and will be showing a series of these kinds of plein air paintings that he's been making over the, the course of 30 years. So it'll be a, a room devoted to his paintings. He recently has gone to Mosul and been working with children there and doing a lot of painting in Mosul. We're also working with Aslan Gazimov, and uh, this is a fantastic uh, Chechen artist, very young, I think, uh, kind of upcoming, doing really beautiful work. Uh, of course, uh, his grandmother, uh, this is an image of the grandmother, his grandmother had been sort of removed uh, from her village uh, in her lifetime when she was quite young. And uh, Aslan brings her back to her village for the first time. And it's in this beautiful mountainous region, but there really, there's nothing there. There's absolutely nothing there. So it's just a kind of heartbreaking film, but very, very powerful. Joseph Grigley, uh, an artist I've, well, both of us have been associated with uh, for a long time. Uh, as a hearing impaired person, I'm uh, kind of fascinated by Joseph's uh, project, which is he's a, uh, I'm, I'm deaf, I have a difficulty hearing, Joseph, Joseph doesn't hear at all. Um, and he's made this work uh, based on collecting images from the New York Times of performers performing. So it's a kind of uh, an archive of uh, the world without sound. <laughs> so again, looking at these collections that exist in the city, the World Museum has this uh, amazing collection of flowers made of paper mache in Germany, I think the uh, early 20th century. And they're teaching flowers. You use them in the class to explain uh, what a flower is, how it, how it reproduces, et cetera. And they're, they're very, very beautiful models. So we'll be bringing about 20 of those, 20 to 30, 30, out, of 30 yeah. out of storage and uh, putting them on display. Uh, something else I learned about in, in Liverpool, so uh, John James Audubon, I guess many of you are probably familiar with uh, this uh, artist who made these incredible prints of birds. And, uh, Audubon, I, I didn't know this until I got to Liverpool, was born in Haiti, I don't know. Anyone in the audience know that? Yeah, so born in Haiti, interesting, interesting history, like you read about, read about his life. Uh, and came to Liverpool to raise money because he, he was always looking for money so he could travel and make these incredible pictures of birds. And Liverpool also happens to have uh, one of the few uh, books, it's an eight volume book, I think it's one of the most expensive books in the world. Um, there's only eight in the world and there's only eight. two in public collections. Right, yeah. yeah, so it's in this beautiful case. It's a little bit like, uh, 2000, what's that film called? 2000, 2001. 2000, bad with numbers. 2001 Space Odyssey. So you go, you kind of, I was wandering around the library one day, came across this case that looked like it was from another world. Sitting in there was this beautiful book and we had a chat with the curator and stuff and we've learned, you know, these books are really beautiful but, uh, when you uh, display a page and you expose it to light, of course, you're, you're damaging it and you're kind of taking its image away. The image is disappearing. So what they do is every week they turn it and they leave that page open for the same amount of time. So the book, if you like, will disappear Dying. at the same rate over time. Um, we're going to kind of, we're going to make an event out of the page turning so people, the public will be able to come and actually watch the case open. It's electronic. There's a kind of gadget you press, the case opens. Um, the curator will go and turn the page. Um, but this has been a kind of quiet, silent activity that happened behind closed doors, but we're gonna do it for the public. It's a really, an, it's a beautiful, beautiful book. And the room is absolutely beautiful where it is. Yeah, do you wanna say a few words about this one? 
So this building is next to, uh, we have lots of cathedrals in Liverpool and we have, this is the Anglican Cathedral and we're also working in the Catholic Cathedral and they're at both ends of Hope Street which connects the two. And uh, in the grounds of the Anglican Cathedral we have this uh, kind of neoclassical building which is an oratory which is very rarely opened to the public. And uh, inside we're going to present a work by Matthias Paledner who is an Austrian artist who's making a new film. This, this bears no relation to the film he's making we don't have an image yet, but we thought the bird was nice connecting it to Audubon. <laughs> and um, uh, his, his film is looking at uh, a play that was uh, by Karl Kraus uh, called The Last Days of Mankind, which is very rarely, if ever, performed because it has 200 characters. And it really talks about the situation in Austria at the beginning of the First World War. So it feels like a very timely moment for him to do something in relation to that narrative. Um, we also have an organisation in Liverpool called the Serving Library, which is a discursive organisation, and together with them, uh, or they've created um, a series of events, so each week they've invited people to do talks, which will help unfold and extend our understanding of some of the things that we're trying to think about together with people in the city. Uh, actually, Candice Hopkins is coming in two weeks' time to do a talk, because we're starting before we open to get everyone excited. Uh, we're also showing Paul Ellerman's work there. So this is the vocabulary he's found in Liverpool from which we made our title. And uh, am I doing Blackburn House? Yeah. Are you doing Blackburn House? Yeah, you're doing I Blackburn am, House. okay. <laughs> uh, Blackburn House is an amazing organisation. It was originally a girls' school, but now it's a kind of women's centre, and it's set up to support women uh, in start-up businesses and women in technology. And in the UK, we're celebrating 100 years since we got the vote. So it's a centenary since the suffragettes uh, took action and made it possible for us to have a voice. So it feels very timely for us to do a residency with them, and we've created the possibility of uh, two artists working in their Taos Machikeva and also Rohana Zaman. She's going to say something, so I'm not going to... We have a little film, so I won't speak for her. This building is... Uh, is it me or you? It's me. Yeah, OK. Uh, St. <laughs> George's Hall uh, greets you as you come out of Lime Street. And this is a very kind of aspirant neoclassical building built in uh, Liverpool. And it was, funnily enough, built for a triennial of music... Uh, a long time ago, and we're opening up for the... Uh, this only been opened very recently, but the cells underneath, the law courts are here, and the cells underneath St George's Hall are where we used to keep prisoners, and then they would pop up into the courts and be sentenced, and off they would go um, to be hung or whatever, and or go to prison uh, in Chester. And... Um, it's a very grand building, and for years it was mothballed because no one knew what to do with it. The city owned it, but it's too big, and nobody can think what to do with it. So it still has a, the courts in there. If you want to get married, that's where you have to go. The registry office is there, but, and they have huge dinners in there, but it's starting to come back to life. So it's really exciting for us to be able to use it and be a part of its new story and its new life. So we're presenting work by Insi Evner, who's an artist living and working in Istanbul, uh, her, she's making a work about heaven and what that might mean in different cultural contexts. I think it's a necessary project, particularly working from the perspective of Turkey right now. It's a very political project. Um, Taos Machikeva, we're going to present this amazing work, Tightrope, which I believe you've 
now acquired yeah, here. Uh, she's an artist from Dagestan. She's amazing. And in this work, she's worked with tightrope walkers um, to carry the national collection of Dagestan across uh, cliff, between two kind of crevice cliff points. And um, it talks, it speaks to cultural precarity and historical precarity and the difficulty of, of holding onto your culture in these challenging times. Um, we're also presenting an amazing film. Uh, it was shown, for any of you that did go to documentary, it was shown there, but we're doing the European, well, the UK premiere. Uh, Naim Mohaiman, who's a um, British Bangladeshi artist who lives in New York. And this work actually talks about a kind of third world summit. It's a very timely, very political project. He's just been nominated for the Turner Prize, so we're really pleased that we're able to uh, present that right now uh, in the UK. So this is the inside of St. George's Hall, and it has this incredible floor, the Minton floor, which is actually normally covered with a wooden floor and very rarely revealed. So as an event during the biennial, we're going to uncover the Minton floor so people can see it. Um, this causes great excitement when this happens in Liverpool. People come from all over the world to see it. And they will have to encounter contemporary art at the same time. Is it still me? Yeah, it's still okay. me. Yeah, all right, Holly Hendry is a very young British artist who uh, is making a very, very large-scale work in the public space. And we're really excited to be able to support her at a very early point in her career. And I think that's part of what we can do, take risks and support artists to take risks in their own practice. Um, and ba Banu Sentarogu, who is a, another Turkish artist, has made this actually incredibly powerful project. So this is called The List, and it's a list of uh, documented deaths of asylum seekers and refugees and migrants due to the restrictive policies of Fortress Europe. So this is people seeking asylum uh, in the UK or in Europe who have died. And the list... Um, it currently has, we're working with a number of um, NGOs to update, it currently has 52,000 names on it, and the list actually will have the name if they have it, or just a number, and how the person died and where they died. So it might say 14 deaths um, at sea, drowned, um, or it might say somebody died in a cell, waiting for asylum and it's actually very sobering reading and it feels very important for us to show this work particularly at a moment where the UK is about to leave Europe so we have decided uh, uh, the UK has decided to withdraw from Europe which means that you know that that idea that we're part of something bigger and part of a, uh, a, a proposition to uh, be part of a more international conversation is coming to a close, and that will happen shortly after the biennial. So this feels very important to show right at this moment. Uh, Paulina Alauska, uh, who's an artist living and working in Poland, uh, has made this work. It's quite funny, actually, because we've got the royal wedding next week. Um, uh, and this is uh, actually an image of Prince Charles being... Um, being, being made up for a photograph by, uh, by the makeup artist from Vogue for a shoot that he did in Vogue. And she's making a permanent ceramic mural in the city which actually uses this image in the centre. Oh, and this is some artists talking about their projects. We're at one end of Hope Street, where the cathedral is. And this is the Catholic cathedral. It's a massive, it's constructivist, loud. brutalist form. I've always come here I stop for years it? and years and years, and every time I go in, whether you're religious or not, it's so magical and mesmerising. 
So the project that I'm doing is to work with uh, school children doing workshops. And with those kids, we're, we're working on making a series of artworks, which I provide like a structure for, and then and they bring their ideas to them, and that will turn into an exhibition. So what I did was we've made a computer model of the shape of this, but quite simplified as a sort of pyramid. And then we've cut that into bits on the computer to dissect it into chunks. And the kids will be reassembling them however they want, knowing that it's this form dissected. I imagine it'll look something like um, a rediscovered Russian constructivist exhibition by some constructivist artist that you'd never heard of. I think it always starts with story, a uh, human story. Whatever sort of grasps my attention, I work with. And for example, I was interested very, for a while, for personal reasons, in ASMR videos. It's such an interesting phenomenon. It's this 3D mics, and it's this membrane digital, and it's people seeking for some sort of uh, digital intimacy and getting it. This is what I'm trying to do, but through like audio, video, through these absorptions of things. My practice is photography, filmmakers. I'm more interested in to create events and some collaboration with, with different community. For example, that's why I came here to Ukraine. There is like some energy with the, the community. Definitely they are activists, I think so. I'm working on the film and at the same time I'm going to create a garden and the inspiration for, uh, is from this garden I saw in Algeria. And one idea is very important in this project is the idea of the resilience. The garden can be like uh, something about uh, resilience or form of resistance. So the project sort of centres around Blackbird House and the groups that are frequenting it and uh, some of the history behind where it changed from being a girls' grammar school into what it is now, which is basically a women's centre. I'm meeting with a young women's group who are just very newly formed um, and are really brilliant and got loads to say and loads that they want to do. So we'll be probably making something that's film-based. It might be an installation, so it might be split across different screens, it might have different like visual qualities as well, it might be documentary, it might be some, some of it might be more um, fictional on stage, or we might veer completely off and, and bring in something completely off the wall as well, which I hope we do, actually. So I'm currently based in Brisbane, in Australia. I'm a Bidjara man of the, 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 the cultural group, the Bidjara people from central Queensland. I belong also to Gungla and Garangal and Gungari connections and, and ancestors. Liverpool's a beautiful place. There's lots of voices in the architecture, lots of different perspectives and voices that I can pick up on. With the multiple branches of what I've been doing in my practice, one of those branches is the wall paintings. So extending and bringing into a new space and a new time. My family's inheritance of rock art and our practice of painting and making ochre-based stencil and ochre-based artworks on walls and on our material culture. So here at the Liverpool Tate, I'm interested to continue that discussion uh, with the, the white space that's here, the white walls, and applying our pigments and our colours, but also um, working with my techniques and processes in, in discussion with the local histories and, and some content. That's it. I believe we have some time for questions, is that right? Yeah. yeah, and we have microphones, and so I've been told to say don't speak unless you're speaking into a microphone, because we won't hear you. But um, has anybody got a question for us? There's one right in the middle there. 
Um, my question is a selfish one to find out how you quantify the money to show the city that arts bring, sorry, arts generate revenue. Uh, this is very important for us here in Toronto as well. Yes, so I have ex uh, how I demonstrate it, you mean? Yeah, so I employ uh, an external, uh, this is important, an external agency that do our evaluation independently. And they interview, so we count people at venues. Uh, that's easy. That's like an, a, uh, that's easy because it's a quantifiable method. But the, the qualitative methodology, we do a thousand interviews face to face on the street and they have some kind of maths that they do that kind of works out based on the answers to those questions, how many sites people visited on average, et cetera, et cetera. And we do them at different times during the biennial. And then we calculate how many hotel nights people stayed, how much they, on average, spent in our bars and restaurants. That's what the city would like to see. So it's a tourism spend to an extent. Um, it's actually genuinely true. What I can't, because of the methodology we use, and this really irritates me, um, I'm, I don't count, or well, the city doesn't count local spend. So I'm not allowed, and that's really annoying because lots of local, we have a massive local audience and they also have coffee and tea and stay and, and, and eat or whatever, but we, they really want to look at, uh, at that particular spend. So it's a very, I'm happy, we share our evaluation on the website, you can read it. Yeah, it's really good, I'm pleased with it actually, it's quite hard work. I guess it would be too it would be too challenging to work backwards from all the businesses that were no it's quite benefiting easy. you're you're taking a sample of the uh, of people that are visiting the Biennale, the Biennale right so they asked like are you specifically here to see Liverpool Biennial or are you just passing so we have some just passing I like to count them as well because they saw it by accident but then it's like you know then we have a targeted visitor so they have to have seen more than five venues. You know, like it's very structured the way they ask the questions, and then uh, in terms of um, of the hotels, it's very interesting. So we have hotel partners, we have multiple hotel partners, and I work with. So just because we like to do this, we work with the independent hoteliers rather than the big chains, so that we make them visible to our visitors as well, and also the same with the restaurants. And um, we um, they know because they track their business, they know the impact that we have. So they can tell us on this day in a year when there isn't a biennial, this is how many people stay. And when you're on, this is how many people stay. So there is an impact. And we're not as impactful as a football match. <laughs> Which is a bit depressing, but, you know. Maybe for the opening weekend, I think we are. So there's a few hands. Is someone... Yeah. Notice that it's sort of 13% were international visitors. Mm -hmm. And is it the hope of the city? So the city council is the funder, and then you've got the federal funding. Um, is the hope that that then that increases? Is that part of your 10 year mm -hmm. plan? Is that really, if that's really the focus, is that where do you find, is that 13% low for you? No, that's or good. Is that what you that's want? Very high. Okay. That's very, good. very high. Yeah. Um, no, I think basically. This is a kind of bigger conversation about biennials and what expectations are. So I'm also part of this organization called the International Biennial Association, which is brilliant. And there's, you know, there's 200 biennials in the world. And um, they're all different because they're all di linked to different contexts and they vary in scale. 
But one of the things we all have in common is managing the complex expectations of stakeholders, whether that's our cities or our artists or the art world or the funders or whoever else it is. And for cities, they want to see themselves as international players. And of course, in a post-industrial late capitalist context, tourism is, is important in terms of income because you know we don't make anything anymore so how do we how do we how do we bring people to the city so they want to see that so the one of the things that we bring that the city really wants is that we're genuinely international in our partnerships and in our program and so you know hopefully we bring visibility for liverpool uh, outside of outside of the UK. Maybe it's an interesting, a, a, it's an in, you know, I have to understand what everybody wants from us. That's my job to mediate those desires. That's your job to do that. And we'll have a Toronto contingent, I'm sure, with Kitty and the AGO. But should I pass the mic? Hi. Hi. Um, I love your work and what you're doing, both of you on both sides of the pond. It's Natalie, hi. Can you hear me? Oh, yeah. Okay. Oh, so, hi. hi. I love what you're doing. I'm just really curious um, as to how you manage to do work that's local, national, and international. You're engaging kids, um, international art people, some well-known, some emerging. I mean, that's, there's a lot of names on that list, and I'm an art lover that I didn't know. And I think it's really amazing that you've been able to create a local, national, and international dialogue. Did you work for a long time to develop a 10-year plan in order to achieve those three goals? Or how, did it evolve over time? I just don't understand your process or how it... It's amazing. Thank you. Does, does, did Edgware Road influence it at all? Did any, who? Edgware Road, any of that? Yeah, of course. Uh, so okay. I think, you know, we all spend our lives stumbling from situation to situation, trying to learn and gather some knowledge, right? So, you know, my work at the Serpentine, it was quite interesting because we worked in a very small gallery with a massive ego, right? And a uh, very important gallery. And um, I loved working there. It was really exciting. But one of the things I enjoyed about working there was the fact that we could work from the gallery into the city. And so we had our tendrils and we had our tempos. You know, galleries, as you know, museums have this, like, event culture, like, eight weeks, eight weeks, eight weeks. And it's exhausting, and you're constantly like producing exhibitions and doing your programs, and you're like exhausted all the time. Uh, yeah. So then the opportunity to work on a biennial, which is kind of the whole city and all the galleries and museums, but over a different temporality. That's interesting. So I took what I'd learned at the Serpentine about pace and engagement and depth. And the really exciting thing for me is the international conversation we have in Liverpool. So. You know, working with Kitty's been really amazing. She brings a different knowledge to the table than I have. But we, we have the great privilege of traveling and meeting artists all over the world. And I have colleagues, biennial directors, in pretty much anywhere you want to go. And we're all, we all support each other because it's so hard that we're just like a big therapy group. And we just cling to each other, and I'll be like, have you worked with this artist? They're like, oh, no, don't do that. <laughs> <laughs> or I'll be like, listen, can you help me just pay half for this? And you have it, you have it as well. And like, we can share our knowledge, we can share our staff, but more importantly, I can go to the Congo, and I can have a list of people to visit and someone to take me around. That's been, like, amazing. And then working in a situated way, you know, you can't ask people to work in partnership with you if you're not genuinely a part 
of that community. I lived there. I mean, you, you've seen it. It's amazing. Yeah. My, it's my team. It's not me. I have the most brilliant team and some really amazing people who do incredible hard work all the time with, and they're brilliant at what they do. And I think that's, that's where it becomes strong. You don't achieve anything on your own in this world. Did you want to say Let me just add that I, I think the work is absolutely breathtaking. It's amazing. So my question is, aside from the financial impacts, how do you think it's changed the way Liverpudlians think about the city? Um, I think it has. I think it's strange. So when Liverpool... I think the biggest thing that happened in Liverpool... There's two things that happened that are really key. First of all, we got Tate Liverpool 30 years ago. And that is... Tate in the north. And if you grow up in the north of England, I grew up in Leeds, not in Liverpool. I only went to London twice before I was 18. Because, like, why would we go to London? And then both times went on a school trip, went to the Tate. And, uh, and then we went shopping on Carnaby Street. I mean, we were just tourists. But actually, you know, Tate wasn't there when I was a kid. Uh, but if it had been, I would have much rather gone to Liverpool it's my collection, it's, it, uh, it belongs to the public, it's the national collection, and it's made available across the UK. So we have that. Then we became European City of Culture in 2008, and the city always tells this story, which was we entered because we wanted to be on the list. Nobody thought we would win, because the city at that time lacked confidence in such a massive way. It had been through all the riots in the 80s, Margaret Thatcher had been in power, there was a huge disinvestment. Um, there's the paper, you know, like government papers become, they get made public 30 years later. She's recorded as saying, uh, let Liverpool rot. And she put in a policy called managed decline, which is as it sounds. And it was the militant left wing were in, in Liverpool at the time, which came with its own problems, actually. Um, uh, but um, Liverpool really hit rock, bo rock bottom at that time. So to get European City of Culture, and to get that massive investment actually gave the city an incredible confidence. And they understand that's because of culture and art. So, and then we have the biennial, and people feel ownership of it. I love it when I interview people for jobs, and they'll be like, oh, yeah, I came to the biennial when I was a kid at school. And it's kind of amazing that they've grown up with it now, and they've stumbled across <coughs> contemporary art, and they might not necessarily know what it is, but they've certainly argued about it, or it's been part of their everyday life. I think you can pretty much talk, I don't know if you've been to Liverpool, but you can pretty much pick up a conversation with anyone. And they'll certainly have an opinion about it. Uh, and they certainly want to have an argument with me about it. You, you've talked yeah, to lots I've of people. I've seen it, yeah, I've seen it, it's true. You've seen, no, you've seen me on the beach with those guys. Yeah, yeah. But also, also when we bought some groceries, the guy... Oh yeah, in Tesco's, because I had the bag, we had the bag early, we printed the bag, and he was like, the guy in Tesco's was like, what's that? Like, how come you've got that already? And I said, oh, yeah, we just printed the bags early. I was all pleased with myself. And he, did, he didn't like it, did he? No, but he knew all about the He knew all about it. He's an art student. <laughs> I told him he could come work for us. Um, but, you know, I like it. It's a, very, it's a very dialogical city. People are very outspoken and opinionated. And they, I find it's funny, because when I worked in London, I often used to go meet with the local authority, and I really used to brace myself for a row on the way in about some mad thing we wanted to do. 
But in Liverpool, I never encounter that. People are courageous about art. They're like, yeah, we want it. Make it brilliant. Make it powerful. Make it difficult. It's honestly true. People have an appetite for risk. I think the less you have to lose, the more you kind of want something new. It's true, right? I think so, yeah. yeah. Um, can I just ask you to talk a little bit about the work you're doing between okay. biennials and how you're engaging the city with programming? So I always describe us as a perennial biennial. We are, a, we're called, we are really like a museum without walls in a way. We're underpinned by education and research. And I have a team that I employ year-round. I don't want to lose them. Uh, and, but I also want them to grow. It's very important that they, you know, you, you need to, people need to develop. So we work together in partnership with organisations, but with the city. And we've produced public art strategies for the city. Again, you can see those on our website if you like. And uh, so we take the opportunity to commission very large-scale and permanent works, as well as temporary interventions during, between biennials. My idea is that we would accumulate the work towards the biennial, but it doesn't work, does it? It's awful, because this horror of producing four works, at four, 40 works, I wish it was four, 40 works at once across 15 sites, you know, if you had any sense, you would try and do that in a stepped way throughout the two-year period, but it just doesn't work. We'll all be running around screaming and shouting at midnight the week before, like we always are. So, um, but yeah, so we work strategically with the city. One thing we do, actually, is all the chief executives of all the um, major organisations in the city, we meet every two weeks and we talk together with the city about cultural strategy. And we work, we do advocacy together and we work together to raise funding to strengthen our voice because, uh, you know, it's important at this time. Uh, and it means that we can be heard at a governmental level uh, because we actually are quite a powerful lobby, much better than on our own. You have a theory right. that Sally's using the biennial as a platform to become prime minister. <laughs> <laughs> you may have uh, started to answer my question. I, I heard early on some advice to Toronto to start early to track so that we could measure... Now. Yes, right away, to measure yeah. the impact. Also, you've just given the idea of the chief executives getting together of all of the institutions. Are there two or three other things you would give us as, as a learned band. experience that we could uh, begin to implement here in Toronto? Yeah, it's kind of all about planning. But I, the other thing I did, and funnily enough, to answer a question a bit more deeply about the 10-year plan, when I first arrived, I had one-on-one -on -one meetings with everyone. Like, I spent six weeks meeting every single elected member. So every local politician I had a one-on-one -on -one meeting with. Every single councillor. Uh, and it just took ages, but I was like, what's your perception of the biennial? What, what do you need? What could we do for you? And because I had had these conversations, I felt I understood what our role could be. And that's what informed us uh, working together to make a plan. And I think the other thing was just going out into communities. And I used to say, like, I'm coming. I just send an invite out and people will come. And in some places, they would just shout at me and be cross uh, because, uh, because of what they'd experienced in the past, or in other places, it would be that, you know, they, it, they would just want to have a conversation. And I think having those conversations and listening to the communities and the artists and the stakeholders and the people that are citizens in the city, you can't spend enough time doing that because actually 
you sort of need it to be everyone's biennial. Kochi in India has got a brilliant biennial. It's amazing. It's yeah. brilliant. Oh, you yeah. went. Yeah, yeah, yeah it's yeah. amazing. I encourage anybody to go. Incredible. So it opens on the 12th of December. So it's great. You can do your Christmas holidays in India afterwards. Uh, and it's a port city. It's small. This is only their third edition, so they've done incredibly well. But they work in all these beautiful buildings, and, and they they've a, been they so a, smart. Yeah, a long history of international trade because of the spice trade. Yeah. Uh, so really connected to an international world already. Yeah. But amazing. Amazing place. And they have year-round programs. They have the best titles for their programs. They have ABC, Art by Children. So good. <laughs> uh, and I was going to do ABC UK. Uh, and we're collaborating with them on Sapphic Change, but what they do, I just think, is so brilliant. And they made these T-shirts in the first year that everyone wore all over the shops, all over the town, that said, it's my biennial. It was so great. And it was just like everywhere you went, people had these, it's my biennial T-shirts on. That wouldn't work in Liverpool, but it worked really well in Kochi. And I think just this kind of local pride and engagement, I would say that's super important. So I do breakfast for the taxi drivers, and I give them bacon sandwiches even though I'm a vegetarian. Uh, and, we, and we brief them about the biennial, because I know that the first thing that people do when they get to Liverpool is hop in a cab, and I want our cabbies to know what to say. And then we do a session with all the hoteliers. So, like, I did hairdressers. That was actually my favourite ever talk that I did, to 100 hairdressers. And I was like, when you've got everyone in your chair and you're doing the hair, you could talk to them about the biennial. Have you seen the biennial? Yeah, oh, great. <laughs> And uh, I just think those are powerful conversations. So I just think I will go down, I'll talk to anyone, and I think you need to be really kind of open in that sense because everybody has a stake. It's, it's very, it's owned by the people or it doesn't work. Uh, I had a question. Um, there's a review of a biennial that sticks out in my mind. It's a review that Tirdad Zolgadir wrote of uh, the... Which one was The it? Istanbul Biennial in 2009. Oh, yeah. That uh, what uh, they have a, uh, what uh, for whom, and no, what oh, yeah, how and for whom uh, curated. And there was also a question, uh, what keeps mankind alive? That was based on the Bertolt Brecht uh, opera. And he said, you know, it's a very important biennial. It's a very political biennial. But actually, none of the artists got paid to be in this biennial, like no one got a fee. And I know artists who participate in biennials and have gone into debt because you get invited, it's important to be it's in the biennial, let's say you have to frame your work or whatever and you, have, you go into debt. I'm not saying your biennial, I'm saying other biennials. And I know Kitty's, of course, knows the system here in Canada with Carfax fees where there's an actual schedule, fee schedule for artist fees. I don't know what the situation is like in the UK, but I'm also prompted to ask this question because the Carnegie International is happening this year is the first biennial to have wage certification. And that's a very specific American context because there's no kind of standard for artist fees in the US, so wage is an organization that's implementing that. So there's a, some sort of standard, and the Carnegie International is the first biennial in the US to embrace that. So I was just wondering uh, if you could talk more about that. I mean, obviously, when artists making a commission, there's a kind of fee involved, but how do you approach that? Because you're talking about the average income for artists being 9,000 pounds. It's terrible, yeah. So we pay, of course, and... Um, at one point, we were the only biennial that paid any fees, which I was very proud of. So we pay our artists £2,500, plus we pay all their travel and accommodation, plus we pay to the commissions. So that's where all my money goes, honestly. 
in fact, hotels and travel is where all the money goes. But um, uh, and we, you know, we—it's a real struggle. We're not a well-funded biennial, so we're small. You know, like the big guys, Guangzhou, Venice, São Paulo—they have like multi-million-pound budgets. Uh, there is pressure to make biennials pay, um, but it—you can't. You know, like Istanbul. Um, is privately funded as you know the state in Turkey anyway you wouldn't take state funding in Turkey so it's, it's a complicated situation I can't speak to Istanbul but I can say in Liverpool of course we pay and uh, you know we I mean we we don't we actually in we don't have the same systems as in the states but we have a everybody in the UK who gets public funding has to sign up to something called paying artists which you can't have public funding unless you do it. So everyone gets paid for their work, I hope, in the UK. Yeah. They should. No, they should be. I mean, Guangzhou have a budget of... Um, it's the art world, too. I mean, I think, you know, looking at how that economy works is very complicated, as you know. You must be an artist. Ah. I pay independent curators as well. <laughs> That's right, you should be paid. I can't speak for other organizations, but what I can say is I run a feminist organization and we think about flexible working hours and we think about paying people properly for the work that they do. Yeah. I even give people unpaid leave, actually. Research leave. So I give my, my team, if they want, because I want them to grow, I let them travel and they can have up to two months fully paid leave to do research if, if it's valuable to us and them. We have time for one last question. Okay, two last questions. There's one back here and one in front. You can ask us a question. Hi, thanks for your presentation. Um, really exciting programming. Uh, I just have a question, um, mostly for artists. Like, how do you, what is your selection process like? How do you get into these biennials? I'm an artist, I've yet to be in a biennial. I went to a conference about uh, how to get into biennials. Oh, and did they you? Told me it, it's, it's about chance and who you know, and, um, you know, what. What can we do to kind of get on the radar? Any advice for artists? Yeah, no, I think um, what, I, what I would say to you is uh, go to every event you can, meet everybody you can, talk to everybody about what you want out of life, um, have those conversations. Yeah. That's, you know, artists have to be out talking to people and having to show and you do all the things that, you know, you know in instinctively you have to do and you have to be very present I, I don't think there's a formula. There, there is no formula. I think that, you know, curators, your, colleague, your friend and colleague there, can tell you that it's our job to see as many exhibitions as possible, to do studio visits, to know what's happening, and, you know, like to work with artists at the right moment in their careers for them on projects that become available at different times, whether that's in a gallery, a museum, or a biennial. What I can tell you, though, is you're an artist based here. So when this biennial happens, if you're not invited, just do a show. That's what I say to people in Liverpool. Use the fact that I'm bringing the world's press and do a better show than me. And you'll get the reviews. 
And in a way, that does work. And I think, for me, I love the energy of the city. We also do quite a lot of seed funding, and there are ways of working together with the biennial to help create a scene. I don't know if that's welcome to say that, Patricia, but, you know, you would talk to... to but I think that, you know, for me, I get very excited when people come to see the biennial, and I can say, oh, there's an amazing artist studio group over here. You should go and see what they've done because they've got an amazing show on. For me, and in fact, a lot of my colleagues, that's going to be what they discover anyway. So, Come up and say hi after the conversation. Yeah. <laughs> I know we're wrapping up, but I just um, wanted to ask you to expand a little bit upon your kind of creative um, curatorial process. Like how, how did you, Kitty, you know, coming into a project that is um, in a context that you're unfamiliar with, a, a project that, you know, has a 10-year plan that exists that's continuous, um, how do you come into that? Where do you start? And then how do you create kind of collectively your concept? Yeah, I mean, I think it's very, very organic. And of course, I, I'll say a few things. And in the sense, it, it wasn't unfamiliar because I've had a long dialogue with Sally. I've been going to the Liverpool Biennial for a long time. Uh, my parents are English, England, England, the UK. I went to school in England. It's a very familiar place to me. So. Um, in some ways, it, it wasn't so unfamiliar. I have a lot of colleagues there because of school and such. And uh, I guess, you know, one of, one of the things that I think became, it didn't start out this way, but it became over time a kind of a very, uh, very pronounced for us. And I guess, you know, working with Sally in London uh, at the time that we did, you could see, and I, I can still see it as a, as a curator, but you go to London and you go to venues around the city and you see who's getting shows, and you know, oh, you know, that's the 24th show that somebody, so-and-so has had in London. But you, know, you meet so many artists that are so good that never show in London, let alone Liverpool. So we thought that Liverpool would be a really interesting space to show work that hadn't really made it into the UK. I think there'll be a, there'll be a few names that are familiar uh, to you, uh, artists that you've heard of before, artists that have shown in, in, in London before. Uh, they're there for various reasons, but I think mostly we wanted to bring work uh, that hadn't been seen in the country. So for example, Mohamed Barassa's uh, film, Worst Day, I saw probably four years ago. Uh, he made the film in Philadelphia with these urban cowboys. I thought it was absolutely amazing. Uh, has it ever shown in the UK? No. Um, I really wanted some work with horses in the show, just a kind of personal joke, but it's yeah. true. Um, and so uh, I actually didn't even think about this, but it kind of became, oh, I got the horses. Um, but yeah, no, a very beautiful, very strong, uh, incredible film. Also, uh, I think somebody like Hegu Yang, uh, I've been looking at her work since Documented 12. I think she's really incredible, showing all over the world. Has she shown in, on that island? No. A uh, very small show at the ICA in and London. The, and at the Tate, yeah. Tanks, a small show. Yeah, and so when we talked to her, you know, we wanted, she's an artist who's really, I think, strong and formidable. We wanted to give her a big space, so we gave her the first floor at the Tate. It's, she just said yes right away, because that's a prestigious invitation for an artist, you know. Uh, so these are how some of the things happened. Um, I could go through artist by artist, but, you know, you're also, when you're working on a show like this, I'm, you know, I'm fundamentally a museum curator. I work in museums. 
Uh, I like working in museums. What I liked about this show is I could work in the city, but I like working in museums. So what am I, where am I going from that? Uh, so many unknowns, maybe. That it, was really funny, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah. I think I've lost Kitty would do, Kitty would be like, so what will they show? And I'm like, I don't know. We're commissioning something new. And she'd be like, oh, God. No, no, but kind of, kind, of, kind, of to say, kind of to say, in a way, even though you're working in a city, this is really just another exhibition, right? It is, yeah. And exhibitions uh, kind of form out of they become organic at a certain point in a way. But we also wanted to be, you know, thinking about Brexit and that particular situation, uh, we wanted to be open, as open and international as possible. Um, I was really interested, you know, uh, the last year that we've lived through in Canada has been really uh, particular uh, about writing various wrongs. And um, I started thinking, oh gosh, I've never really seen very much indigenous art in uh, the Tate or in on that island. And so actually let's bring some of those voices over. And so somebody like Annie Pudaguk, who I think everybody in the audience who, who knows the work will think absolutely amazing artist, um, to see that work in the UK, to hear that story, to learn about, uh, to learn about that practice. People have been absolutely fascinated uh, by that story. And you know, it makes me feel very proud that you know, she's somebody who who came up in this country and is uh, going to be seen in England for the first time in a major way. So very exciting. So I don't know, does that answer your questions? I, I could go, I could go yeah, on no, a bit. And then the dialogue with Sally has been really important because Sally has a kind of, I think a different set of interests to me in some ways. Yeah. We may be too much alike and in some ways we're incredibly different. And uh, you know, at the end of the day, I can argue with Sally, I can tell her I don't like what she's doing. Uh, I can um, just say no. Uh, but she can actually also bring me around to a yes. You know, we have a very good conversation and uh, shifts and changes all the time, so. I'll still be there when she's gone. <laughs> <laughs> so like, you know, she'll come for the opening or whatever. I'll be the one there every day <laughs> doing the tours. I'll leave, she'll still be there. I'll still be there. <laughs> With the yes, I understand yeah. you don't like it. I'm yeah. so sorry yeah. about that. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Thanks, thanks for all okay. the great questions, by the way. Yeah. It's, uh, yeah. Been really nice to talk to them tonight and thank you all for coming out.